This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. One of my goals for this year is to spend less time binge watching and more time binge reading. For that, I need gripping audiobooks like Exiles by Jane Harper, a captivating mystery about a missing mother set in a small town deep in Southern Australian wine country. The audiobook is read by Australian narrator Steve Shanahan, who really makes it feel like you've traveled across the globe. Start listening to Exiles by best-selling author Jane Harper now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer Laura Zara Popinski, and today Elena Dillon is back on the podcast to discuss Eyes Turn Skyward, a brilliant dual timeline novel about a daughter discovering her mother's past as a female pilot during World War II and the consequences of women's contributions remaining unrecognized. Eyes Turn Skyward has received many rave reviews, including from best-selling author Kate Quinn, who says Eyes Turned Skyward is a powerful examination of the cost, emotional, familial, generational, when women are denied their right to soar. Elena Dillon's poetic prose and complex characters will linger long after the last page is turned, and I can attest to that. I devoured the book and still can't stop thinking about these characters. Um, Elena Dillon is the author of Mercy House, a library journal best book of 2020, The Happiest Girl in the World, a Good Morning America pick, My Body is a Big Fat Temple, a memoir of pregnancy and early parenting, and Eyes Turned Skyward. Elena's work has appeared in publications including The Daily Beast, Lit Hub, River Teeth, Slice Magazine, The Rumpus, and Bustle. She teaches creative writing and lives on the North Shore of Boston with her husband, children, Black Lab, and lots of books. Elena, thanks so much for coming back on A Bookish Home, and congratulations on Eyes Turn Skyward. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, this is um, my favorite kind of book. I love getting to read about sort of the untold stories of women in history. And I just was completely swept away by these characters. I was stealing, as you can relate to, any possible minute to to get back to the book. You know, okay, the kids are watching a show for a few minutes. Let me grab the book. Um, Somebody's napping. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get to read another chapter. So I just loved it. And I would love to hear a little bit about how you maybe came upon the real wasps and maybe found your way to this story. And yeah, so um, I started writing this book 10 years ago. um, And I I know that because in September, when I was getting ready for this release, I got a Facebook memory um, reminding me that I had just started it. Um, So I had been looking for a new subject. And um, I was considering writing about my aunt who in the fifties drove uh, cross country to go work as a nurse in California and how that struck me as something that must've been so unusual for the time. Um, But I had never written like a a history piece before. Um, So I was just kind of orienting myself with the time period. I didn't really know much about the fifties. So I was just doing some light research just to kind of get a sense of, of the time and what was happening and the culture and, um, and, I just found like through like Wikipedia loops, I just kept clicking loops or links until I was going further and further and further back in time until I landed in World War II with these women Air Force service pilots. And I had never heard about them before. And um, they just sounded like such heroes that had um, no recognition at all. And, you know, such skilled women whose um, skills then went on, 
utilized um, for decades after this two-year period when they served. Um, so from then on, it was just a book about the women Air Force Service pilots. So interesting. I had never heard of them either. And I mean, I guess I'm not surprised because so often we don't get to hear the really interesting um, stories of women's contributions and women's lives. But was it difficult to find a lot of sources or has this been written about a good amount and well, written about a good amount and we just haven't seen it? There's a couple fiction, uh, like just historical fiction novels about the women Air Force Service pilots or that just mention them like kind of in a, adjacently. And so I went to those, um, but there, yeah, there, there really isn't a lot, but what there, what I was so lucky to find was this treasure trove of historical documents. Um, there was a, a project hosted by um, Baylor University um, that just kind of gathered all of this information about the WASP in one place. And that was done, I think, in year decades ago, either like the late 90s, early 2000s, um, that that all of like that, that these documents were collected in one place. And that was, you know, 50 years after they had um, been dismissed. Um, but in that place, I was able to find so many primary source materials. Um, so like videos of them training, clips of oh, wow. them singing, um, the, the hand, like the, the, the plane manual, you know, the, the flight check that they'd have to use, um, governmental letters that, you know, that, that were sent out, distributed to them, um, specifically like the letter of their dismissal, um, which was so, it was incredible to see the, like the exact words and the language that was used because then you could kind of like into it, like all the subtext beneath that message. Like they had specifically said something like, um, you know, we have, we have um, the purpose of the wasp was to release men into battle um, so that, you know, they can go overseas and, and you could um, do the domestic flight duties. Uh, but now that the war is coming to an end, you are no longer releasing them, but replacing them. And I'm sure that is not what you would like to do. Um, so at this point, you know, we are going to dissolve the program. Um, and so it was like, you know, th that, that kind of in like implication of, you know, we don't, you don't want to be taking a man's place. I'm sure you don't want to be doing that. Um, that I, I just had to save. And so that was the only document I think, well, the only document for sure. Um, there might've been little pieces of dialogue here and there, but it was the only document that was just like, I just like highlighted it, copy and paste and put it in and use that exact letter. Um, because which is, you know, open to copyright because it's a government document. Um, such a slap in the face after yes, yes, after reading exactly. about you know how intense the program is and the training and all this like the sacrifices made and then just to be dismissed yeah. and for, and you know that's sort of I'm oh, sorry for for listeners who haven't read the book or haven't or don't know about the wasp maybe I, I'll just like quickly summarize what yeah. they are so they can get like under like appreciate the dismissal um but they were a group of women um who were called like so many women across the country at that time um to fill gaps that men had left behind when they went overseas so while there was defense workers in factories these were women um that were trained on all military aircraft at the time and they fulfilled all of the domestic flight duties in the united states so they ferried planes from one base to another they tested planes that had been repaired they towed targets so that men could um, practice shooting into the sky um they 
they went on under a seven month training program that was very rigorous, um, academically, physically in the air, um, left their children and, you know, families behind, um, to come to Texas to do that. Uh, there were 25,000 applications and only, uh, 1000 women ended up graduating from the program and going into service. And there had always been this kind of implication that after, um, after you know enough time, they would eventually be folded into the military and granted the same benefits that were extended to men, um, but that never came to fruition. No matter how hard um, you know the the commanding officer of the uh, United States Air Force has tried and the director of the program, they lobbied very hard, um, but they were uh, uh, just voted down time and time and again. Um, so that when the program was ultimately dissolved the women went home with zero benefits. Um, they were not considered veterans. They didn't get, um, you know, any government pensions or the GI bill or, um, and, and in fact, there were 30 had died throughout the program, either in training or in service. And those women had to uh, collect, you know, all the people in the program passed around a bucket to collect money to just send their bodies home because the government wasn't going to send it. Um, They weren't given military funerals. Um, They were just considered civilians. They were volunteers. Um, And then uh, 40, yeah, 30 years after World War II ended, the um, Air Forces issued an announcement that women were flying military planes for the first time in the 70s. Um, And that's when all these WASP kind of rallied together and got a lot of media attention and, um, and, and made sure that people heard their outrage because they were in fact the first. Um, and now they were in their fifties, you know, like they, they had flown in their twenties and now they're their fifties and finally asking for some recognition. And they got a bit, they were considered veterans and they did get limited benefits, but not the full extent. Um, and then in 2010, um, they were granted the congressional gold medal, um, for their service. But by then only like 200 of them remained because it was, you know, 60 years later. Yeah. So far after the fact, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that one of the characters in the book, you know, like in, in the real history um, dies while flying one of the planes. And I just thought that scene just sticks with me where they're at the cemetery and, you know, a man who died in the war is getting this full military funeral and a woman flying a plane for the military. You're, you know, had, had the bucket passed around with money Mm -hmm. to send her body home and is getting no recognition for her. Right. No no flag over the coffin, no tag. Yeah. Oh, that made me so angry. And I knew all those little bits. I'm sure, you know, as I was reading, I'm like, I know this must be true. And, um, you know, well, one of the things I thought was so interesting was the way you weave together sort of the um, uh, Peggy training in the past and sort of her, her story. And then um, we have her daughter now in her maybe 50s. And we kind of see Peggy modern day, like in her old age. And um, Kathy, the daughter, it's also kind of struggling with, you know, different dreams that maybe weren't fulfilled or what's she going to do next? Her kids are grown. I just thought it was so interesting reading about their 
two stories and kind of having them woven together. And I wondered if that structure came to you right away and just even how you, you know, you had the broad history of the wasps, but did it take you a while to figure out kind of what you wanted the individual storyline to be? Yeah, it took me quite a while. Um, So it was originally just a manuscript about the wasp, just like that historical fiction piece. And it, um, I worked on that in that version for probably like seven years, um, just trying to find out what Peggy's arc would be. Like if she was a person who, you know, like would start off kind of selfish and then like the service would, you know, show her what, what purpose felt like. Um, And ultimately, um, like we, I submitted it to, to different publishing houses and I had a few editor or a few agents representing it and we just like, couldn't get traction. And it, it, I think in retrospect, it's because the story wasn't quite right. I hadn't really found the heart of it yet. Um, and then when, when I was wondering like what I was going to work on next after selling, um, you know, Mercy House and then the happiest girl, I was like, you know, I, I, I love that story about the wasp. I wonder if I could revitalize it. And then I had kind of established myself as like, you know, this certain type of novel. And I wasn't sure that like like the historical fiction piece um, would quite like fit. And it didn't just, it didn't feel like me anymore. And I was like, but how can I salvage it to like, feel like who, like the kind of books that I, that I'm interested in and writing now. And um, that's when it occurred to me that maybe I could bring part of the piece into the present because I'm, you know, dealing with a lot of contemporary um, social justice issues. And, and so it had always occurred to me that like, maybe it one day I'd write a sequel to that book or like I was, I've, I've always been interested in Peggy's story after the war ended because part of what's so heart wrenching about the story is that they're dismissed and they have to go home. And while that, um, you know, that scene was in the first version, I didn't really see what happened to her after and what happened to her family and how this disappointment and rejection might haunt them all. Um, so yeah, it, I was really compelled by the idea of what her life would have been like as a domestic military wife and how like following her husband around to all these different air bases and watching him live the life that she wanted to live must have just you know, weighed on her and weighed on her children as like an unsatisfied mother. And um, especially if she had a daughter, how she might have transferred those, um, you know, kind of lost dreams onto her daughter and what her daughter must have felt like if maybe she didn't possess the same kind of ambition and drive that her mother had and how that tension must have, you know, might have uh, existed between them for so long. And I thought thought that perhaps Peggy might not have shared her experience with her children because she was so proud. And um, in addition to being outraged at her government, she probably would have been a bit humiliated to have been given this opportunity, risen to it, proven that she could excel and then have it wrenched away from her anyway. Um, was just kind of like an example of powerlessness that um, she probably would have been too proud to share openly um, with people, you know, with her descendants who she hoped would admire her and would, you know, have this conception of the world um, unsullied. It also felt true to maybe that generation as well of like not in different circumstances, not sharing everything about the war. Well, and it's interesting not not to discuss like the tragic things that they had seen. Right. Well, and it's interesting. You were kind of figuring out how 
this fit with your other body of work? Because for me, I kept thinking about your memoir, My Body is a Big Big Fat Temple, Mm -hmm. because I felt like the book had so many just really sharp, interesting observations about um, mothers and children and the way we see each other. And one of the things I, I never forgot about your memoir is just that whole idea of you're so enmeshed with your children when they're very little how hard, because I'm not there yet, how, and I, and I think about it and get sad, how hard it must be when they, you know, they don't remember that, they don't feel that same closeness to you anymore, because, you know, you're there everything for so long. And so to kind of see the observations about having, you know, adult children and seeing the, the child they were to you, but now the adult they are now, and just sort of, that that closeness changing over time. And I just thought there were so many interesting observations. And then, of course, you know, thinking about Peggy as a mother and just uh, the, the way you write about parenthood, I think, is just so spot on and just leaves me thinking about it for, for days and weeks. Ew, and oh, I so appreciate that. Was there a character that you found maybe the most difficult to write or... I, I I guess I'm more naturally drawn to female characters. So, um, but I I really try to, especially when I'm like writing about misogyny and things, that I, I really try to to balance out the male characters, even when I'm also wanting to point out maybe like the flawed system that we've all been brought up in. Um, so, like for Kathy's husband, for example, Neil, um, he the like the book opens that he had been laid off and um he had a, a very successful job and they they have these a lot of expenses and so he can't get another job because he's in his you know late 40s and um and had a high high ranking position and so he's kind of um overqualified and um and so he's kind of depressed and and in like experiencing a lot of malaise for for months like kind of stewing in that um as so many did in after the recession um and you know it's so difficult to to get a new job when you're kind of in middle life um and so when Kathy tells him that she went ahead and got a job um like t- to it was it was a hard balance to find like the resentment like to 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 ha- like find that place where he would feel kind of um threatened by her abilities but also happy for her but and supportive but still sorry for himself you know like the bruised ego and like loss of identity um would be very real but you know you don't want to make him unlikable because he's kind of like you know moping around that his wife can now work um so that was tricky for me to find to like to to really exercise empathy and to see him as a full-fledged human and to love him um, even when he was, you know, kind of misbehaving. Yeah. And I, I really liked reading about their dynamic and especially for, for Kathy, sort of like your whole, your whole world is kind of turned upside down. Like your, you know, her kids were her world and her life and um, her partner was the one working. And then it's sort of having to navigate this, new reality and then kind of maybe finding out that, you know, she's liking this change. And I just, I sort of liked watching her kind of get a new stride and kind of start another chapter. I just thought that was really, um, I liked reading about that a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, it must be so hard to just like recreate yourself, but like, yeah. you have to, 
we, as we enter different chapters in our life work, we have to constantly recreate, right? Or else we're just going to be mourning what was. Right. And to also, it's the that other parenthood role too of you're also writing about like, what's it like when you have to start parenting your parent, which is mm-hmm. a role Kathy sort of falls into. Was that difficult to, to write about or um, to, to tap into? Or did you kind of um, talk to people about that experience? Um, so I, I think I've been observing it for a while with my parents and, and then my grandparents. Um, so between me and my husband, we still have three grandparents left who are 95. Um, so there's been, you know, about 10 years, probably more than that of like, you know, decline and, and then having to give up things that they can do. And that kind of power shift between, um, when, you know, their children are able to make decisions and how much they struggle against it or how much they're open to it. And, um, and then that dynamic between the children, like the siblings of, um, you know, the default, in in like all cases, um, always went to the daughter, which was you know not surprising, but perhaps unfair and, and a burden. Um, and maybe it'll change for the next generation, but for for the you know generation above me, that that seems to be kind of the understanding is that the the daughter has this like tether of responsibility. Um, like we just assume, I guess, that maybe like that women more often than not are the caretakers and then like the, the sons, you know, they, they participated, um, but they were more off the hook and more Mm -hmm. like apt to like have the freedom to live their own life while like the, the women were kind of like, they always stayed close. They were like lived closer and then also just like were, had more comfort, um, you know, having their parent lean on them, um, so that was interesting to me and like how that made tension between that female and her siblings, um, you know, like wishing that they were more involved with wishing that she had similar freedom, um, wanting just like the family to stay together, wanting to do right by the parent, but then also, you know, having all of the like 40, 50 years of grievances, especially like in, in Kathy's case, when Peggy wasn't quite maybe the the mother that she had wanted in some ways or like didn't think that she had been loved the way that she needed and now had to turn around and offer such patience and care to the person who thought who she considered had denied her those things um yes there were there were some scenes where she's thinking about that like that she in this moment wouldn't have been offered like the same grace and compassion, compassion as a child. I thought that was so moving and interesting to think about. I just, you just write those family dynamics so well and um, gives so much food for thought. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, you know, your, I know, I know this book you said took 10 years, but it does seem like the books are coming at a fast clip and I'm always interested how people sort of stay on track with that. Do you, you know, and I know you have very young kids too. And do you have like ways of keeping yourself on track with your writing, like hitting certain words, word counts each day? Are you someone who needs like a lot of accountability? Do you like just crave that time to get your writing in? How does that work? So I think the rate of publication is deceiving. Um, so like by the time Mercy House was published, I already had, um, you know, like the happiest girl written. And so that had happened like 
I started that when I was pregnant, so I had no children. Um, and then half of my body is a big fat temple was also basically written while I was pregnant. So like that was before any children. Um, so, and, and then those books came out and then eyes turned skyward. I just had to write, I mean, I had to work, rework the world war two stuff, but a lot of that was already written, you know, 10 years ago or beginning 10 years ago. So I just had to write the contemporary half. Um, so that's, that, that was like the speed children have certainly slowed me down um that there's no question about that i used to like have these long languid days wandering my house you know like writing for a while then like watching maybe an episode to like relax my brain having lunch running an errand coming back writing again um that is no more uh now (laughs) now i i mean i still am very lucky i have three hours a day in the morning um where my husband watches the children and then he goes to work and um and then i i watch the children um so i'm really lucky to have that flexibility um and i i do like when i'm writing fresh material i do have a benchmark that i like to hit and that's just 1000 words um, and then it's, that's harder to track when I'm like rewriting things and, or just like rereading and stuff. But, um, so usually my, my, the, the standard I hold myself to is just like three hours a day. And that's usually like weekends too. That's, I, I just always find it really helpful to hear about how people are doing it. I'm sure it's kind of like, I mean, I try to ask men that as well, if I know they have young kids, but I'm sure probably, I just appreciate when people are open with sharing, like, how are you getting it done? Because it's yeah. like inspiring to people that are also trying to, yes, to do it. it. It should be stated how little else I'm getting done. Like, like the house is a mess, <laughs> like laundry piles up. We don't cook. Like we are, we, I feel like between my husband and I, we get the absolute bare minimum done to work and survive. And like, we just get food in our kid's mouth, but it's not very special. (laughs) And like, that's, we are just, well, you have a very little baby too. So, I mean, the fact that you're writing and getting a thousand words in, I feel like I was barely like, I don't know, functioning as a human with a very, very little babies. Um, yes. Well, I'm also super lucky because my husband had this like tremendous paternity leave that he's still on. So oh, that's good. Um, yes. That makes all the difference in the world. Which should be everywhere. And it should. Oh my gosh. So good for everyone. Yes. Um, because I like for my first pregnancy, he didn't get any paternity leave. So he took a, like a week of vacation or a week of like sick days and then went back to work after a week. And like the difference in how our family's operating and how I feel is just night and day. Like I had postpartum depression the first time and I don't now. And like I don't, I'm not saying it's because of that, but it's certainly, you know, it was, it was a relief to have such support. It would be, I think, different for a lot of people if there was more support. Well, just the last couple of questions. I, I, are you able to share anything about what you're writing now? Sure. So um, I don't have any like deals in place um, that are, you know, so no forthcoming books for for certain, but I definitely have a lot of projects in the works. And um, currently when I'm revitalizing, so I'm like, I keep going back to these manuscripts that I had written before um, kids and trying to like make those work (laughs) and finding their story. Cause it really takes me, it, it, it changes with each book, but it, it often takes me years to find the heart of a story. Um, so I, I, I never give up on a manuscript. Um, so currently I'm working on one that has to do with the opioid epidemic. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I think that's interesting too, that you're kind of going back to things that maybe were in a drawer and putting fresh eyes on it and everything. And I, I, I like that. 
Well, are there any um, books you've read lately that you'd want to recommend to listeners? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so when I'm working on the the opioid epidemic book, and when I work on a book, I I always just um, read, or I mean, honestly, listen because I'm I'm all audible um, books that have to do with that theme. Um, so, like, just to kind of stay in the mood and maybe learn some new things. Um, so I, I'm reading a lot of memoirs by um, substance users or people that um, have substance users in their lives, as well as journalists just kind of investigating um, the state of things. So I'll, I'll recommend one of those and then just like a different kind of book too. Um, so the, a, a, a nonfiction book that kind of changed my perspective of the opioid epidemic for anyone who's interested in that um, is Undoing Drugs. Um, and that's really focused on harm reduction and like how we can, how we should address, um, the, the crisis in a way that saves lives rather than, you know, just emphasizes abstinence, um, and learning about that. And that just came out this year. Um, and learning about that is like kind of making me rewrite the book in a way. So that's the other problem with, um, books going on for too long is that like the, 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 the view of the topic evolves and you have to kind of keep current. Um, so, so yeah, that, that book is kind of changing the way that I'm looking at the story and the characters. Um, but then as far as like a different topic and just a book in general, um, this year I read or listened, um, for the first time to a book and then went back and did it all again. Um, and that's the, the first time that it's ever happened to me. So I think that's worth a mention. Um, and that was Night Bitch, which I'm, I'm sure you've read, but, um, that really like, it, it was just such a, a shocking, it was just such a unique premise and like not the type of book that I usually would read, like a kind of magical realism book about, you know, like an, an unsatisfied mother who turns into a, a dog at night. Um, but it was just so like profound and beautifully written and, and just touched on such relevant ideas to my life. That is probably one of the books that's gotten recommended um, the most to me this year. And I feel so guilty that I, and I know it, I would love it. And I just keep like forgetting and don't pick it up. And yeah. I, to, I, and then I'll say, I'm going to read it. And then I get distracted by other things, but I feel like I would love it. <laughs> well, it's ni- yeah, it's nice to know that there's a book that you'll love on the back burner that you could turn to when, when you have the time. That's true. I feel like I need to be more organized with like, I'm not always good about actually writing down my to be read list yeah. and then I forget. Um, well, I really hope that listeners go pick up Eyes Turn Skyward um, at their local bookstore or, you know, get your hold in at the library. I just thought these characters were so fascinating. I loved hearing about an aspect of history that's been overlooked. I think that um, listeners will enjoy that too. And um, I'm really looking forward to reading your next book. And just thanks so much for coming back on. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.